0: Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure
1: retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in, because Big Mike has got the mic, starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fund Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik. Today, it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Francis Newton Stacey back on the podcast. Hi, Francis.
0: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Francis is a repeat guest. Most importantly, she is very well known. I am humbled and honored uh, to be her friend, and uh, she is just wonderful. Uh, She has appeared on Fox, Fox Business, Yahoo, uh, CBS, uh, Bloomberg, uh, many, many major networks. Uh, I I think I've seen you on uh, with Maria Bartiromo, uh, one of one of those programs, more than once. And uh, you're in very high demand now. You appear on these shows quite often. So, thank you again. I'm humbled to have you on the uh, on the podcast.
0: Oh well, thank you. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure to be with you. And yeah, some some it's feast or famine with TV. You never know.
1: Yeah, it is. We we are in this pandemic world. I think there's a lot of um, anxiety and a lot of um, interest for uh, your wisdom. So let's jump straight into this. We're now post election. And um, the market seems to be uh, pretty happy. It's doing its happy dance. It's almost at the historic highs. Uh, I haven't followed what's what's happening today, but it, it's it's doing quite well. So, um, why is the market so happy with the first-time Democratic president? Is that the historic trend? Just just curious. What do you think?
0: I think the market is more happy with the idea around a divided government because as of yet of course we're waiting for the runoff uh in georgia in early january but as of yet it appears as though we're going to have a republican senate and it appears as though biden's going to be our president and some of most of my friends on both sides of the aisle are pretty moderate and the co- the country has because of its populism and because people are getting left behind and there's a lot of social angst, the country is moving to extremes in both directions, Um, you know, depending on who they follow or who their leaders are. And I think that for a lot of people, both sides uh, were taking, taking it a little too far for their comfort level and markets like certainty. And so when you talk about pricing in a super far left or super far right, Markets get disruption and uncertainty, so there's that factor. Uh, There's the factor that they think that we're going to have more fiscal stimulus. um, That potentially, you know, having Yellen come in as the um, Madam, you know, Secretary of the Treasury, um, is going to coordinate the Fed and the Treasury a little bit more than people perceive with Mnuchin and Powell, which leads to more stimulus, more stimulus, and more stimulus, and so. But then also having the divided government, having the Republican-controlled Senate, if it should remain that way, of course, limits the amount that Biden can raise taxes. So you kind of have the best of all these uncertain worlds so far moving forward. And I think that's what the market's now pricing in, in addition to a vaccine and, you know, hopefully a reopening.
1: Yeah, I I thought you would start with a vaccine, but you finish with a vaccine, Um, so, but i i agree with you 100% the stimulus is inevitable and uh, it feels like they will do do you have a a, a good figure do you, do you think is it going to be 2 trillion 3 trillion is there a good guess what where are they going to go
0: i think if i had to guess what the market's pricing in now i would say it's around 2 trillion um you know obviously the heroes act is 3 trillion and the republicans have rejected that so again if they remain in control of the senate it now if you know, the runoffs change and the Democrats get control of the Senate, then they would have control of the House, the Senate and the presidency. I think initially markets would trade up on that news, given that there would be more stimulus. But I think taxation and different tax policies would start getting priced in pretty quickly. Um, The interesting thing is, is that won't be determined until January. So you have the whole year to sell those gains. You know, Biden's obviously talked about taking the capital gains rate up to you know, the income rate, which is about, you know, it's going to be 39 to 40% for people in the top bracket. And so you'll see people taking those gains because they want to pay 25% of those gains rather than the upper echelon of those brackets.
1: Wow. That's uh, so you're, you're a little bit ahead of me. I haven't followed the the latest projections by, uh, by the Biden administration. All I heard is they want to kill 1031, 1031 exchanges. But I didn't hear that they want to raise the capital gains rate all the way to the current income rate. That yeah, would so be that
0: tough. that would be something, wouldn't it? Yeah, so that was he campaigned with that. So that came out in his new tax plan, and I did a couple of television segments on it. But yeah, that was one of the things. And then also just um, you know bumping the corporate uh, tax rate from twenty one percent back up to twenty eight percent. And that would be, that's a really, it's a really tough time to do that, right? Because it's really going to, again, it's going to be another hammer on small businesses because the pandemic has already picked winners and losers. And the small businesses have, you know, ubiquitously been the losers. And that would be another thing that would hammer on the balance sheets of small businesses.
1: Yeah, it's almost unthinkable to have taxes raised in the middle of pand- pandemic. I understand the fairness issue. I think that Part of the agenda is the kind of fairness, and I don't know what they call, they call it—social justice. But uh, hurting small business with a higher tax rate is not kind of the thing you do in the middle of pandemic. But that's another discussion. And the capital gains rate, <laughs> yeah, the capital gains rate. Well, wow, this is the holy grail, right? He's he's touching on a holy grail of um, Democrats do get big checks from. Um, uh, substantial uh, <laughs> investors <laughs> guys like Bill Gates and other ones who, uh, you know, most of their wealth comes in the form of capital gains. You know, I, I, I don't know how much support they're going to get. There's going to be some resistance.
0: Well, there there's certainly going to be resistance from Republican controlled Senate. Um, if the Democrats take the Senate, it's just sort of what echelon of their party is driving the bus. And that's, there is some consternation From sort of the AOC contingency of the party to the Biden contingency of the party, because, you know, um, Biden has said he's more moderate. But of course, Kamala is more progressive and AOC is more progressive. So when it comes down to issues like that, do the progressives win or do the moderates win? And I agree with you. I think the moderate Democrats probably wouldn't want to do that um, to discourage capital investment again, hurts businesses and balance sheets, even if, you know, it's perceived as being unfair. I mean, the thing is, is that the stimulus. Anytime you throw a bunch of money in the economy, it's going to go through the financial system first. That's where it originates. And so it goes into the capital markets. And unfortunately in this iteration, which is so much bigger than that of the global financial crisis, um, so much of that liquidity is getting sucked up to debt service. So again, it's sort of precluding the trickle down effect when you think of, you know, Laffer and Reagan and those times and, you know, some of the stuff that Trump was kind of trying to capitalize on and the re- Republican ideology around supply chain, um, or I'm sorry, supply side economics is that trickle down effect. And that's not occurring because of the record amount of debt in the system. So what's happening is that the money's coming in and creating an asset bubble, but it's just not trickling down into the lower echelons of the economy. So it's splitting the middle class. Um And I would say most of that split is going into the lower classes. It's deleting the lower classes, killing the small businesses. It's killing the lower end, which is requiring stimulus to hold that end up while it's, you know, making the top end of it, you know, ever wealthier because asset prices are going up. And then the other thing in the system that's putting a lot of pressure on that is the fact that even though we don't see quote unquote core inflation moving higher, which is what the Fed follows of course it X's out gas and food prices, Um, you know, food prices are going up and gas prices are gonna be going up because oil's going up and lumber's going up. And so these raw materials, commodities in general are just tearing to the upside. So for the people in the middle class who didn't get crushed by the pandemic, they may get crushed by the change in the cost of living because they don't have the cushion that the upper end of the spectrum has. Um, to afford the cost of living. And so they become de facto poor by the cost of living increases, even though we don't quote unquote, see, you know, core inflation moving up. And then of course, the Fed has said that they're not going to target inflation at 2%, but they're going to target an average. So they're going to let it really cook, which makes sense because you've got to pay back that debt with cheaper dollars. So.
1: Well, that was brilliant, and a uh, couple of points that still boggle my mind. One is the cost of living is going up, and inflation, uh, the CPI, is just is stagnant. <laughs> that, that, that's almost counterintuitive. Uh, I, I understand the mechanics of it, but the average Joe would struggle with the with the concept. It's it's more expensive to to live. At the same time, there's no inflation, and I I, I guess. Uh, for the uh, entitlements and the social security recipients, they they tie the increases to the um, CPI, and I think it's going to be a challenge for uh, at least the lower part of the folks of the of the economic uh, spectrum to maintain their standard of living. So that's what yeah, you said. for sure.
0: One of the reasons that it doesn't make sense is just there's, there's a big lag. There's just a big big lag when you're looking at things system wide versus you're looking at little pockets of the industry that are rising, um, and so. You know there's there's a big lag and the other thing is is that when you when balance sheets and corporations and governments and everybody starts taking on more debt more debt more debt which we've done during the pandemic that debt service is actually passed on to consumers in many cases through price increases but not right away so there's a lagging effect but um definitely um Looking forward, you know, we're expecting inflation. We're expecting this idea about papering over the pandemic paper, you know, and the existing debt that we had in the system and the existing stimulus that was in the system pre-pandemic. And so that's what we're looking toward. The only thing that will make that uh, untenable is if we have problems in the credit markets because, of course, we have a number of loans that are in forbearance and we just don't really have any idea when, you know, what percentage of those loans will actually be defaults. Um, so that's deflationary. Um, you know, if you have hundred million loans in forbearance and what percentage of them default? 2%, okay, we'll sail right through that. 3, 4, 5, 40, 50, you know, you, we don't have a gauge for that. If we have high default uh, rates, of course, when you write, you know, debt down, you take that money out of circulation. So it's very deflationary. Uh, the other thing that is quite interesting is we have sort of this discussion about forgiving student loan debt and I've seen some figures sort of loosely floated around, but I've seen one figure to forgive 1.7 trillion in loan debt, which I think would probably be the totality of it. And you know, when you forgive debt, you write it off of the books, which means it comes out of circulation. So if you put 2 trillion in um, with stimulus and then you forgive 1.7 trillion in debt, you change the debt service for the individual borrower, but systemically you reduce the money supply concordantly And um, then that's also a deflationary pressure. So I think that's why, you know, and then there've been talks about, you know, removing partial debt payments. And it's true because the people who have student loan debt are the people who are not winning in the scenario where things are being very divergent right now. And so it makes sense to help those debtors and not have them quote unquote default. But if you write it off, it's the same as if they default. Mechanically for the money coming out of the system, so that's one thing that economists are going to have to pay close attention to.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so politically, that forgiveness would be very popular, and it would be, um, you know, continuous uh, ticket uh, for Democrats to push to for you know maybe midterm re- election re-election. We're, we're just at the start of the presidential uh, new new term, but at the same time, they always. Uh, think about popular items. But um, back to the uh, defaults or, or, or forbearances, do you know the size of the uh, total number of um, uh, loans in forbearance? How, how big is that uh, relative to the entire, is this 8%, 10%? And are there any projection what percentage of them will actually default? Because there's a, in the commercial real estate, at least where, where I play, there's a lot of money looking for greater opportunities, but the opportunity is just not yet happening because of the forbearance, the kick in the can, at which point will the can, can can no longer be kicked. And then you could sort of play the game with residential mortgages, because it's, it's, you know, owner occupied people's home, you, 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 you can likely extend that. But why would you extend commercial? At least it doesn't have the same goodwill as the residential. Do you have sort of any, any general senses? What do you feel is going to happen?
0: I have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> because we have Don't so have much a crystal disagreement. Ball? <laughs> yes, um, right, exactly. I'll be retiring that island. I'm going to buy that island. No, um, I don't know what's going to happen. I have not, I've seen numbers floated over the summer and into the fall. I haven't seen the numbers change a ton. Um, There's a big data dump that comes in quarterly from the Fed and I haven't seen, you know, that's probably coming in the next week or so. So a lot of the stuff that I have is September um, from their database. But the thing is, is that I've heard about eight Plus percent of the mortgage um, market is in forbearance. I've heard that we have a hundred over a hundred million loans, um, you know, all kinds of loans in forbearance. I don't know that that's meaningfully improved. I did see somebody come on—I want to say it was J.P. Morgan um, on Bloomberg—and saying that you know, fifty percent of the loans that were in forbearance had come actually out of forbearance, and that was a couple of months ago. Now, with the shutdowns kind of reoccurring, I don't know how stable that piece of information is. But that person was highly convinced we weren't gonna have any kind of a credit crisis just because of the large percentage of people who'd come out of forbearance at that point. But that still sort of gleans a 50% default rate. So if you take all those 100 million loans and then you say, you know, even if 20% or 25% of those default, that's gonna be pretty scary for the credit markets. Um, I just really don't know. And I don't know when, um, you know, Biden's, you know, uh, so, you know, we're, I'm assuming Biden will take office and I don't know what's happening with the Senate. Uh, whenever those numbers come in, well, first of all, are we gonna extend the forbearance period? Um, that's gonna be one thing. And then whenever the numbers come in from any, you know, statistically, and it would be nice to know from the individual institutions, you know, what percentage of their loans are going into forbearance coming out of forbearance at any given moment in time. And if it's extended, It's just so hard to say. And then when it comes out of forbearance, how do you then predict, did new people lose their jobs because of a second lockdown or COVID or other things? And then how many more loans that don't have the option of going into forbearance then just become defaults? And of course, that's gonna be about the labor market. We have about 11 million people out of work, but you know, so if all 11 million people default on their various loans, it's just really hard to stay. I think in the interim, I, first of all, I don't think that they should have let the $600 a week expire. I think that was a, a mistake. I totally understand the criticism that people were using that not to get jobs, but I'm gonna I'm gonna think that it can't be the majority of people. Um, obviously, some people used and abused the PPP loans. I don't know if Kanye West really needed one. Uh, of course it wasn't just him, uh, he's just, you know, he's, he's a name that sticks in my mind, but um, some of those things, but I think we statistically still don't know how many Americans are falling through the cracks. And so, because you don't know how many Americans are going to actually starve to death or, you know, we have the eviction moratorium expiring in December. We have the extended unemployment benefits expiring in December. So if you take the statistics now for how many loans are coming in and out of forbearance, And then you move past December with no new fiscal stimulus and you go, well, how many of those people that were on unemployment benefits that didn't go into forbearance or were keeping up with their rent are now going to get evicted or go into forbearance or if forbearance isn't available, then become defaults. And so there are so many moving pieces, um, it's really hard to predict what's going to occur. But in the overall situation, when I look at it, I see inflation until I don't. And then I know what I'm looking for in order to unmock that inflation. And it's two things. It's debt forgiveness and default in the credit markets, because those are both very deflationary things. So if I see early signs of that, then I will change my investment strategy.
1: Yeah, that's very f- fascinating. <laughs> but um, what do you think is gonna happen with interest rates? Are they gonna stay low indefinitely? If, uh, I guess they, they, they need to track inflation. Inflation picks up and the uh, um, employment figures improve, then the rates could go up. But you know, what are the scenarios for the rates to stay where they are, start slowly moving up or actually drop in the negative territory?
0: Well, in the near term, it does look like the, the yield curve is steepening and that rates are going up. I'm just wondering how far they're going to go up before the Fed comes in and lowers them again, because, you know, and I'm talking about yield curve control, you know, where they target asset purchases somewhere along the curve to try and depress that part of the curve with the purchases and. Um, I don't think that the 10-year is going to get much above 1% before they would come in and intervene. Because the problem is, is that on the one hand, you would like to see interest rates go up because it's signs of a recovery. And then you get loans moving and you get things going like this. But on the other hand, because we have a record amount of debt in pretty much every sector of the economy, if interest rates go up too far too fast, that's going to create a wave of default. We're not going to be able to service all of that debt if interest rates are moving higher. And that's the reason that the Fed would come in with yield curve control is because they would, they would foresee the deflationary challenge coming from default if interest rates went up too far too fast. So I think that they're going to let them run um, until they start seeing pressure on liquidity. um, And then they'll probably come in and constrain them again. I don't know how much, you know, I don't know, like I said, I'm, Just watching the 10-year, I don't know how much above 1% they're going to really let it run. And it will probably be something they're monitoring uh, in the liquidity of the system. the other thing to remember is that although we have a record amount of liquidity that was dumped into the system because of the pandemic, debt service removes liquidity from the system. And so debt service becomes the real problem looking forward when you're looking for things like inflation, um, you know, to inflate your weight out inflate your way out of the debt, but yet you want to keep interest rates really low. That's a a really tough dichotomy that you're kind of navigating. And, um, you know, you can read Ray Dalio's Anatomy of a Debt Crisis, or I can't remember the exact title of the book, but he goes through 48 debt crises. And he uses total debt to GDP, and really about 365%, there are definitely some exceptions, but about 365%. Um, debt to GDP is really when a country starts having some problems and looks like it could be headed for restructuring. Uh, we're at 362, I believe the last figure I saw. And um, we're not quite there on public debt to GDP, but um, you know, there's another economist from Harvard that basically said about 150% of regular debt to G- you know, public debt to GDP is about the breaking point. So we're not really there. We're kind of in the 106 sort of realm um, which is really funny, because that seemed to me what the number was before COVID. But in, in any case, we're above 100%. And then it's really that total debt to GDP number that we're hitting sort of the danger zone. And that's sort of the challenge that policymakers are going to have is that you want to have more stimulus come in, you want to fix the economy, uh, you want to look at the wealth gap, you want to look at taxation, but you, know, you, have, you risk kind of falling, falling off of the cliff. And if you fall off of that cliff, Um, Then we're looking at a restructuring with the IMF, which is usually, you know, sort of comes with austerity. And I think it would call um, the United States dollar as the reserve currency into question. And I think there would just be a lot more fracas. So, of course, um, you know, we do need stimulus. And, you know, in the immediate term, people who are suffering, it's more important than these debt considerations. But once we kind of fill the gap from the pandemic and do everything that we possibly can to help those and get the country reopen, then we're really gonna to have to look at those debt to GDP ratios because they're important.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in what you said. Uh, and and the, the key point here is it sounds like this stimulus is gonna be on the on the order of ten percent of the total national debt. And the acceleration in 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 um, uh, in, in growth of debt relative to the GDP is, the, is exactly the alarming factor. And then it, it, 150% uh, public debt to, to GDP or uh, the total debt, uh, most people don't think about it, but it creates massive um, uh, pressure on the interest rates. In fact, that they can go up. I, call, I like to call it grand conspiracy fearing. but the United States just can't afford high interest rates because of a debt service. Uh, effectively, all the stimulus it gets, as you said, sucked out of the system through the debt service. So um, it, it is, uh, I mean, that's why Japan is in negative rates, right? They, they have very high uh, public debt, and I guess total debt to, to GDP ratio, is that they have no yes. choice but to go negative rates. Well, and, and they've been there for many yeah. years at this point.
0: Yeah, and I believe they actually exceeded 450%, but uh, total debt to GDP, and it's hard to, imagine you know where where the breaking point is but the thing about covid is that we've added to the debt but we've also contracted the D- gdp quite dramatically and i realize that you know the third quarter numbers coming out here shortly and i realize the third quarter number month over month or i mean sorry quarter over quarter is going to be huge but <laughs> it's coming off of the comp of the worst number ever you know so when you, it's it's really the year over year number that i think we want to look at but you know you know, debt to GDP is a ratio. So when you make the GDP figure smaller, <laughs> then of course it exacerbates that debt. ratio on both sides. And that's the thing that we're contending with. And that's the thing that the Biden administration is going to contend with. And that's the thing that, you know, And I, I don't know, and I don't want to be political, but I don't know if some of the more progressive parts of the democratic party, if they should come into power, you know, what their spending will look like around that issue and, and, you know how they think about that issue versus how the moderates think about that issue, but I'm hoping that the common sense prevails.
1: Yeah, you think about this issue. I I I've, I, I believe that most of these um, sort of uh, mostly politicians think about reelectability and 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 singing the right so- song for their constituents. Not uh, they don't really think about what what it's going to do uh, on a long term basis. It's it's a short term thinking. Uh, But there are the really interesting point you mentioned. They wanted just to. I will
0: say I do actually have some compassion for them, because my thing is is I always like to be very apolitical. But when I think about appealing to different people in office, depending on who ends up in control in the next administration, it's it's really hard. It's so hard to try and have a conversation with one person on one side and the other person and stay completely neutral because you have to speak. To something that they really understand and are passionate about in order to get them motivated to kind of like, you know, consider what you're offering as a solution. And it's just hard. It's just really hard to not go from one room to the other and sound very political because that is what people understand. That's the language that they speak. And that's what they, you know, that's the culture that we're living in. So it's yeah, tough.
1: <laughs> it, it is tough and it's a great point. It's very difficult to be in the middle. You you either go left or right, to key whoever's in the middle is just nobody wants to talk to them. They, well, and and, and being the majority an of the country is hard. in the
0: middle. And it, it, yes.
1: That's the truth. But um the the you know, you don't want to be kicked out of both rooms, let me put it this way.
0: Exactly, which is that's really hard. And then you get accused of pandering. But anyway, it's it is very difficult to appeal to both sides simultaneously particularly given the populism and the populism is a you know naturally born out of you know the wealth gap getting larger and larger and larger which is a natural sort of reaction to you know continuous iterations of the business cycle so this is just where we are and if we compare where we are to where china is i think they're about 50% 60% debt to gdp i know people say their numbers may or may not be reliable but I, I don't know. They're a lot less than we are. And from that vantage point, you can see that they have a lot more room to paper over than we do.
1: Yeah, we're sort of in this disadvantage. Uh, too much national debt, it creates a, uh, uh, it's basically a, a heavy load on the train to keep you know, pulling more and more load. And unfortunately, there's not much we can do until we go to the restructuring, which nobody wants. And But one comment you made, and I wanted to just provide a little bit of color, The in the commercial real estate space was most fast. This is true, kind of in broad uh, terms. The Q2 to Q3 growth was phenomenal. Right, it looks like the numbers are just we're back. But in the commercial space, the deal flow volume has dropped uh, substantially from 2019 to 2020. That's the big issue the uh on the absolute terms um it looks like a substantial recovery but it's not if you it, you know compare as you said year to year so I, I made the same observation and it feels uh like the deal flow even though it's getting better but it's still far below uh where it was a year ago so and then oh well,
0: when you think about you know so we're allocators and when we think about risk assessment we think about credit markets and <laughs> debt markets and stuff like that that sort of bleeds into individual deals, even though it's systemic and that makes it hard.
1: Yeah, exactly. Your wisdom is so much uh, appreciated. Uh, We are past the time. I wanted to thank you again for coming as a guest on the podcast. Uh, Love having you here and um, have a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving. We're recording this right before Thanksgiving. And uh, I don't know when it's going to come out. I'll let you know, but I'll try to make sure it comes out as soon as possible. So oh, enjoy, thank enjoy you so holidays. much. Thank
0: you for having me. And I always enjoy these discussions. Thank Have you so much. Have a happy Thanksgiving.
1: Thank you kindly. Have a great day. Bye.
0: Bye, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun book, head to bigmikefun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.